0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Nick Hayes, author of The Book of Trespass, Crossing the Lines That Divide Us, about the radical history of English trespassers, how the enclosure of common land formed the foundations of English capitalism, and how we can fight to enforce our rights to the commons and our right to Rome against the Conservatives' assault on some of our most basic freedoms. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at AWorldToWinPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Now here is Nick Hayes on the importance of land and land ownership to our sense of what it means to be English. Hello, Nick Hayes, and thank you for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today?
1: I'm really well. Thanks. Uh, Thanks very much for having us.
0: So we're going to talk today a bit about your book, The Book of Trespass, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading and I'd really encourage all of our listeners to pick up as well. I want you to start by just telling us a bit about where you're from in England and what it was like to grow up there, because I think you're from quite near where I grew up. I was kind of between Reading and Basingstoke in the countryside around there. Is that a matter of fact?
1: I tell you what. Yes. The older I get, the more Basingstoke becomes more and more impressive. Uh, you know what?
0: That is music to my ears. <laughs> yeah.
1: Basingstoke. Well, obviously, if you're a local, you call it Amazing Stoke. So. Amazing
0: Stoke or Blazing yeah. Smoke, as we liked when we were <laughs> when we were younger.
1: <laughs> Better. Uh, is that your like neck of the woods? Then is it?
0: Yeah. So I'm kind of um, literally. My I grew up my whole life in a small village called Sherfield on Loddon. Yeah. Which oh, is, yeah. yeah, kind of just off the A33, basically.
1: I'll be um, with fingers crossed, I'll be swimming past Sherfield on Loddon for my next book. Uh, well, you
0: might be swimming right by my house. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's because um, obviously the Duke of uh, Well, not obviously, but Duke um,
0: of Wellington, yeah.
1: Yeah, he owns about a quarter of the River Loddon, which yeah. is, is arguably a little too much for any one person to own, especially if they're owning it at the, uh, you know, exclusive banning of every other member of England.
0: It's obviously, you know, an idyllic place to live, kind of that whole area of the countryside around where you and I both grow up. Mm. But a lot of people are excluded for enjoying much of the land in those areas. What are some of the main landowners around where you grew up and how kind of rigidly do they enforce their property rights?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't actually answer the first question, did I? I grew up in a tiny little village yeah. uh, in between Yattenden and Pangbourne um, in West Berkshire. So um, just a couple of miles from the River Thames where I'm living on my boat at the moment. Well, actually, I can see from my uh, duck hatch the uh, Hardwick estate, which I kind of extol in the book for being pretty much every single virtue uh, as the land rights movement would see it. In terms of land stewardship, in terms of public access, in terms of people being able to, I guess, get the mental and physical health benefits of the nature that they own, they're very open-minded. But um, on my side of the river, it's without a shadow of a doubt the right honourable former MP Richard Benyon, who owns approximately 12,000 acres between Hampshire and Berkshire, and I think a 20,000 acre grouse moor up in Scotland. Which might seem a lot, but is actually quite paltry compared to some of the uh, you know the dukes and and lords that form the majority of our land ownership in England. And yeah, I was I was a bit cheeky in the book. I kind of uh, worked out a way that I could actually go to his MP surgery because he's uh, where I grew up. He's um, uh, or he was before Boris Johnson gave him the hook, the local MP. So I went along for the first time in my life. Never been to an, a GP or MP surgery before. And yeah, went and asked him about um, why 12,000 acres, why so much land could be um, for the exclusive use of him and uh, the people who gives permission to be there and not for the hundreds of thousands of people that live around it.
0: You kind of started hinting at it there, but I wanted to ask you as well, a kind of more general question as to why... The average person in England should care about this sort of stuff because a lot of people haven't grown up in the countryside, uh, in the kind of places that we have, in those very idyllic spots. There are people who are in, in cities or towns, there maybe isn't a lot of green space, who have a very different kind of conception of England and the land in within it. And they might have only kind of experienced the English countryside when, you know, traveling away from home or going on holiday. So some might say this is a bit of a middle class issue. Why do you think access to the countryside is and should be important to everyone?
1: Well, I tell you what, it's only it's only recently that the notion of uh, uh, sort of rambling or swimming has become a kind of predominantly middle class thing. It's, you know, hashtag wild swimming is all basically gleamingly smiling middle class people on Instagram. And, uh, you know, if you walk into Black's or uh, any of the kind of outdoors supply shops, you're just going to see, again, the same models pretty much advertising wild camping, which incidentally is uh, due to be criminalised by the current government. So, you know, that there is an issue of uh, um, so much of the countryside has being excluded from so many of the people that actually... A vast majority of people in England have even forgotten that uh, taking your exercise outdoors is even uh, an option. But really, it's it, it comes down to public health. It comes down to the fact that the science has proven how, say, cold water swimming is just incomparably beneficial to your mental health, you know, relieves uh, anxiety, depression, rambling. Um, you know, we have an obesity crisis. We have a loneliness crisis in England, which is obviously... Something that very few people talk about, but but both of those uh, are substantially alleviated by being able to go out into the countryside, either doing it in groups as with cold water swimming or on your own. It's an issue of public health, and NHS Forest, uh, who are you know a sort of uh, affiliate organisation to the NHS, uh, have estimated that we spend 8.2 billion pounds per year on dealing with the fallout of people's sedentary lifestyles. And I know that, you know, the government are looking at green prescriptions, kind of following New Zealand's uh, lead on that. Boris Johnson's doing press-ups in his uh, office. Uh, You know, like, the optics of the government are certainly, there's a focus on public health, but the elephant in the room is people need access to nature on a regular basis, and they can only get that on a regular basis if the countryside that is closest to them is opened up to public access. And as I go into in the book, only 8% of England is open to public access. And most of that stuff is remote and very far away from the majority of the population. So, you know, the book is making the historical and the political point for that. And then the the campaign that me and my mate Guy Shrubsall set up, most of our day's work now is put towards changing that.
0: How do you think land ownership, and another term that you introduced in the book, ownership anxiety, relates to our idea about what it means to be English?
1: Well, I'm glad uh, you, you kind of referenced it a bit earlier on, the, the, the notion of Englishness. And I'm like, glad you came mm. up again, because effectively, for the last thousand years, the people that have been able to f- define the spirit and the identity and the values of England, uh, have been fundamentally the people that own the land beneath our feet. You know, if you if you have the right to exclude people that you don't agree with or ban congregations of people whose ideologies you don't agree with, and I'm talking anything from Gypsy Roma travellers to um, free festivals to just community groups that uh, have nowhere really to express, you know, what it is they're doing, you know, the sacred earth shamans, the pagans, the various different groups of people in England that make up England uh, have been silenced by having absolutely nowhere to express uh, their community, except for the fact that if they're able to pay for it and that in itself is a, uh, is a wall that many groups and communities uh, can't get over. So effectively these cultures are kind of um, stymied at the very least but silenced more directly by not being able to gather the book takes a big hard look at colonialism and the kind of responsibilities that we have to the just massive boost in infrastructure that came with east indian and west indian colonization but really, the story that isn't told, and it's a crucial one in terms of, you know, how we've been divided as a nation, is that the commoners of England uh, and the commons of England were colonised long before we sort of took that same exact same process abroad. And um, it's kind of robbed us of a kind of English spirit that, that isn't connected to the kind of pageantry and the kind of uh, overbearing narrative that is kind of trumpeted by the sort of stronger media in, our, in in our country, it's basically we've lost this notion of what a commons is and what a commoner really is. It's become a pejorative phrase, and that's because it's not that we've forgotten the history. The history has been silenced about the power that we used to have.
0: That's a really fascinating answer to the question, because a lot of the time when we're having these discussions around England and Englishness, it kind of deteriorates into an either patriotism is good or patriotism is bad, you know, and patriotism is like it's, you know, queen and country and, and all those sorts of pretty reactionary, nationalistic and xenophobic ways of thinking about one's national identity. Mm. And what's forgotten, I often think, is that much longer, deeper history of English radicalism that's connected to not just socialist organizing, but to folk music, to kind of all these different traditions that basically, as you're saying, have been lost. And you think that that has to do with the enclosures and the way that they not just enclosed land, but also enclosed our idea of our own national identity and foreclosed other ways of understanding that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm sort of a bit nervous to get into this, but I've recently been researching just the kind of context and the definition of indigeneity, because the the notion of nativism and a, a sort of indigenous Anglo-Saxon Englander, well, has been politicized and is highly contentious because it is just subconsciously linked with xenophobia. And uh, George Orwell wrote a really great essay on how the intellectuals of England are sort of shy of patriotism because of how quickly it can um, fall into nationalism. But just on a really basic level, like uh, I'm, I'm one of your classic sort of East London beardy hipster folk uh, heads, you know, all I listen to is, is basically old Irish, Scottish and English music. And there is a history that is something that we can be proud of. And by and large, the middle ground that have been kind of uh, bewitched by UKIP and and the idea that there is something, some kind of true blood that has been watered down, all of those kind of things. If you look at it generously, what they're a lot of a large proportion, the middle ground of these people are trying to say is that I don't want to stop feeling proud of my country. You know, like uh, I grew up in West Berkshire and it's beautiful. And the idea that West Berkshire can be beautiful as well as uh, somewhere in Afghanistan, like one doesn't have to gain any kind of supremacy over the other, but that you can still feel this kind of genuine heartfelt pride without competition or, uh, you know, a sort of uh, need to uh, be superior. I think we can look back to the land and our relationship with it and all the culture that came about as a result of directly interrelating with the land, because folk music is, is a bit like hip-hop. Hip-hop's got four pillars, you know, turntil- turntablism, graffiti, emceeing, and, and I can't remember the other one. But folk music is just one pillar of this this very rich culture that existed as a result of people creatively interacting with nature and folk music is really all we've got of it. There's a red list of endangered heritage crafts with about 56, uh, you know, from barrel making to kurak making to um, stick making, hook making, like all of these things, they may seem quite an anach- anachronistic, but, but actually they're just an expression of how much we like to like work with nature, uh, to observe it and to sort of uh, create with it. And all of that has just been cut with barbed wire. You know, our, our connections to that nature has just been separated by this notion of exclusive ownership of land.
0: I this I find this really interesting. I don't know if it's something about where we grew up, but I certainly feel similarly about my feelings towards England, and partic- that particular part of England, as being really fond of remembering kind of the, these amazingly beautiful places that to me just feel like home. That's where I'm from. And I'll always kind of love and be proud of it, but not to the extent of wanting to exclude anyone from it or thinking this is just mine, or this is what defines my identity and therefore something that kind of excludes other people. And there's always that danger, isn't there, of our attitudes towards where we're from, bleeding into something that you talk about in the rest of the book, which is quite rigid notions of ownership, this being our land, Mm. and therefore should be made inaccessible to others. And this obviously plays out in our national attitude towards migration, towards empire. Do you think that there's an extent to which there can be that pride and love of one's home that isn't exclusionary?
1: I mean, I would hope so. And once again, I would find it in what is called commons philosophy, Mm. giving as long as you're caring, as long as there's this sort of reciprocal relationship between you, your community and the land that you're situated, then of course, pride and love. And um, yeah, that sensation of feeling at home is natural. But where you and me grew up was uh, famous in the 18th century for being where all of the or or where a large density of the East Indian colonial giants came back for their retirement. Like my local manor house is uh, Basildon Park, and that was owned by Sir Francis Sykes, who uh, who didn't just make a ton of money by bleeding India of its wealth but also you know uh, was engaged in criminality and just you know uh, raising all kinds of made up taxes that had absolutely no justification these people were crooks robert clive just lived a 5 minutes walk away from where i am now with this massive estate so if those are the people that define our country then yes we absolutely have uh, to look our shame and the absolute duty we have to reparation directly in the eye and, and deal with it because i say in the book we're almost like alcoholics who are in denial and this is for the health of our nation we need to actually acknowledge the true history and not this kind of narrative but at the same time over in the west indies it was uh, uh working class english people that were indentured servants before they came up with this great idea of uh just enslaving people from west africa and not um not paying them a dime for the work, but they worked alongside the Irish prisoners, the Cromwell's prisoners from the Civil War, the disbanded New Model Army. It's an issue of class, and that these people were used as the kind of sharp end of an implement that went to colonise other countries, but not for their benefit, but for the benefit of basically industrialists or capitalists or people that were just seeking to bleed the land and the free exploitation of uh, other people's labour to put money in their own pocket.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the enclosures now, because you mentioned earlier this interesting idea that kind of England colonised itself before it went on to colonise the rest of the world. What were the enclosures? How were they justified? And how were they central to the kind of foundation of English capitalism?
1: Yeah, that's a big question. The um, Enclosures is basically the largest element of English history that is never taught to the English, because it's fundamentally how the 99% of us were divested of our common rights. And so back in the day before uh, Enclosure really took on, pre-William the Conqueror even, who, who was the person that came over and introduced this notion that land could be owned with the exclusive interest of whoever the owner was, and and, and thereby cancelling anyone else's rights to it but commoners rights would be the ability to go and graze your cattle on land that you didn't own because if you didn't own any land then obviously you had to graze your cattle otherwise the cow would die you know it was your winter fuel allowance you were allowed estovers which was the name given to just picking up fallen wood you know seasoned wood from the forest floor that you could just heat your home with Hunting, you know, like all of these things that the welfare state has basically had to be created in order to replicate this idea that you could be poor, but not completely at death's door, that nature was uh, this resource that you could maintain sustainably, uh, because the whole notion of the commons was that you didn't own it, you borrowed it off your grandchildren, you know, this was a resource that had to be managed very carefully, but with the consent of everybody and with the voice of everyone heard. Around William the Conqueror's time, he came along, created this thing called forests. Forest is a word that's got nothing to do with trees. It basically it comes from the Latin meaning outside of, and he created this new designation of land that was outside of common law. So suddenly, all of the villagers that relied on their estovers taking winter fuel. Uh, was suddenly a thrown out of the, uh, you know, the fenced enclosure that he created simply so that he could breed more deer so that he could hunt them. All of these people were just now all of a sudden bereft. And the welfare state is is the, uh, you know, the creation of the kind of um, simulacrum of what the commons were. The issue is, of course, because now the welfare state comes with a stigma of shame. Whereas, of course, in back in the day of the Commons, it just meant autonomy. People were able to be self-subsistent and not have to lean on other people. But as soon as enclosure came along, uh, and there were various bouts of it. It was 1235 was the Statute of Merton, which is the first time it kind of became came into legislation. Then the Tudor Times, it kind of like merged between being completely illegal what was uh, you know landowners who just had the power because they were in the the employers they also had their own private armies like you know land is so deeply connected to power that many of these people were able to do illegal enclosures just simply because no one uh, would raise a voice against them because they literally owned the land that these people lived on and it would come back at you. And then the Georgian era is by far my favourite era of enclosure because that's when England's most beautiful resource and natural environment, the rivers, were finally fully enclosed. And as it stands today, we only have public right of access to three percent of our rivers, and all of this is based on John Locke's thesis back in the six—I think the 1600s. It's been a while since I've read it now, where. Basically, he says, if you're able to um, take some land, even if commoners had rights in it, and if you're able to, the euphemism they used was improve it, which is still a word that councils or private developers use today to improve land, is basically to turn a profit out of it. John Locke's theory was as long as as it was your effort that you put into doing it, then you actually had the right to uh, ban other people from it. But even in that tract that so much of our, you know, subsequent law is is based on, there's this thing called the Lockean Proviso, which which basically states just so long as there is enough space for people to be able to self subsist, and of course in England there just isn't. Commons are a shadow of what they used to be. There's about a million acres of them in England now, but people have lost the right to be able to autonomy to be able to. Um, uh, survive on, on on their own. And of course, by the Georgian era, what really happened was when, when it all souped up and uh, enclosure became the mad craze again, that just led to hundreds and thousands of people being effectively expelled from the countryside, which is something that went on to fuel the Industrial Revolution and the kind of cheap labour that was used there. And all of a sudden, people stopped campaigning for their rights to land, because all of a sudden they were you know, more um, focused on campaigning for better wages. So the whole slant of protest changed in the Georgian era and people forgot about their rights to land.
0: So we don't obviously live in a, in a feudal society anymore, but there are clear symbolic and material elements of the old feudal class system that remain in lots of our institutions. But power and influence are not in the same way that they once were, determined exclusively by land ownership. So why does land continue to play such an important role in defining the British elite?
1: That's a really good question. I think my honest answer to it is that I think tradition, I think that land is this hugely important and emotive subject for the uh, aristocracy uh, because actually a large proportion of them, uh, say the Duke of Beaufort, uh, have been there since William the Conqueror forested the lands like uh, you know they were the first barons to receive uh, the kind of um, the gift of land for their military conquest and that's where they've stayed ever since but of course what land also enables you to do it's not just to turn the profit from agriculture or forestry or mining uh, where all of these you know common the common, was kind of siphoned off into private pockets because of enclosure, but also it allows you to borrow off the uh, wealth of your land. You know the value of it. It gave people a kind of surety that was uh, that allowed them to you know play really high high stakes risk uh, financing and allow them to really make the big money. Also, it, it's the it's the ability to um, and and this is I mean. We hear this now more than anything in terms of landlords and the the rentier capitalism. Like, If you have the ability and the legal backing to be able to throw someone out of their home, then you have all kinds of uh, what might be called soft power to just get your way and to get people uh, living in the way that you have dictated that they ought to. There's this kind of myth that enclosure is something that happened in the past, but especially during lockdown where people were getting a bit more or landowners were getting more and more nervous that people were starting to breach the fence lines, you know, like the rights of way, even in the countryside were crowded with people. So people are suddenly starting to look over the barbed wire and think, well, look at all those acres of woodland. Why, why are we not walking through there? Like enclosure is something that is happening currently and, in Kettering is another good example. The Duke of Buccleuch is just cutting down ten acres of forest because um, he wants to put five new warehouses there. And just like what HS Two is doing, there is another form of enclosure, which is, I guess, enclosure by obliteration. If I've cut down the countryside that I own, uh, you know, if I am using the uh, wood or, or or just literally using the space so that I can rent it to industry then I've just cut off uh, however many thousand people used that woodland during lockdown from their closest and, and most beloved nature resource. But I have the right to do that because I'm the landowner.
0: All of this stuff is intimately linked to property rights and, you know, the right to kind of destroy things that that you own, which goes back to, to Roman property law. And this yeah. is something that we think of as absolute, as something that some liberals would like to think of as as natural rights. But they're actually really complicated, socially constructed ideas, and they differ dramatically across space and time. Why do you think that the codification of a really exclusionary set of laws around property has been enforced in the UK and what's the history of that?
1: Ah uh, I I wonder why the UK I I think perhaps it's because we exported this notion and we took you know our uh, ability to um enclose land and uh drain its resources directly into our pocket uh we took that same model from the commons to places like India or uh, uh the West Indies And for that reason, it really kind of entrenched that notion within our own national psyche that that is the just order of things. I think perhaps because this idea that it's just basically quite horrific, the idea that we uh, exported something that was just so detrimental, not just to the communities that live there, but in terms of exploited soil and, uh, you know, um, natural reserves. So maybe there's a sense that we don't want to actually look, obviously, very strongly. That's kind of what the last five years has been all about, just this battle between being able to look history in the eye and uh, those that would rather deny it in the face of just clear, rational evidence. But there's, I I think there's something also very human about the notion of exclusive ownership. You know, there's... um, just this desperate need, once you've got hold of something, it only really becomes yours when you can be sure that no one else can have a piece of it. Um, so I do think there is uh, something deep in in just the kind of human psyche that needs exclusive ownership of something. But obviously the role of uh, society is to, um, to create systems that make it more fair for, for everyone.
0: You've got some really interesting stories in the book um, about people throughout English history who've breached these property rights, either just for pleasure or sometimes for protest and what's happened to them. Can you tell us a bit about some of those people um, and how they form a really central and important but often forgotten part of English history?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, most protest involves trespass because um, and and most silencing of protest involves trespass laws, you know. um, Uh, I I suppose the Greenham women uh, is, I I concentrate on that in the book, in the middle of the book, uh, for for about half a chapter. They were uh, women that were ostensibly fighting, you know, Reagan's new nuclear missiles being um, dumped in a, uh, or or held in storage in Newbury. And maybe about 20 women walked from Wales uh, as, as a protest. When they got there, they thought, well, we might as well stay here. And that turned into, at times, you know, 50, uh, sometimes 70,000 people were gathered in this one spot where the nuclear missiles were stored, Greenham Common. And that in itself turned into a a kind of protest that the the press and the kind of orthodoxy at the time didn't really understand. Because when they banned men from the site, it also became ostensibly a a kind of anti-patriarchy Message and it's now famous, really, for being more of a feminist protest than it is uh, against anti-nuclear. But the thing is, they were there nineteen years, and every single day they were being plagued by, uh, you know, the consensus of the local Newbury people who thought that they were just leaving a mess there. Quite aside from there also being state-endorsed nuclear warheads there. They had a problem with the sexuality of the women, the hygiene of the women, even though the council were constantly removing their standpipes, which is how they got water. But Michael Heseltine was repeatedly trying to throw these women off the land. But time and time again, he was was proven by the courts to have been acting ultra virés, which is kind of appropriate in terms of a feminist protest because it, it means he was acting beyond his manhood as a sort of literal translation of the Latin. And he was basically overreaching himself. He was trying to do what William the Conqueror did and basically evict these women from an area of land, even by the, you know, 90s, very, very rare areas of land that people actually had the right to congregate. So it just so happened that, uh, you know, the Greenham military base had been... Built on common land, but the bits, the margins that were still left of common land, the people had every right uh, to be there and to raise their signs. But no one really talks about these protests in terms of land, even though it's essentially land legislation that almost always the authorities try to get people evicted uh, and to silence their protest. Uh, And another example I use in the book is the Sheffield Tree protest, the, you know, the Labour-led council uh, had a private finance initiative with the same people that were building the third runway at Heathrow, like a big multinational corporation, who wanted to cut down the vast majority of 17,500 trees in Sheffield, like a, a forest's worth of city trees. And the locals, bit by bit, cottoned on to the scale of what was going on. It was all down to WhatsApp and Facebook. They they gathered together, they created this... Um, coalition called uh, stag and they fought it but whenever they gathered around the trees uh, the councils had effectively reenacted enclosure around every single tree they uh, they would put up uh harris fencing the kind of fence you get at festivals and they would enclose the tree with an injunction that said if anyone were to go within that fence they would be arrested for aggravated trespass and so trespass is this weird amalgam in English law and culture, where on the one hand, it's kind of a bit last of the summer wine, darling buds of May, a bit cheeky kind of countryside story. Everyone's done it. But on the other side, it's the, it's the way that states are able to silence protest. And that is exactly what's happening with uh, Pretty Patel's new policing bill to a, a dramatic level.
0: You have perfectly anticipated my next question.
1: <laughs> was that a segue? Was it?
0: Yeah, which was just going to be how um, how are these moves to criminalise trespass? Do you think they're part of a kind of wider authoritarian agenda that's being pushed by this government? Whether that's through the spy cops bill, the overseas operations bill, the policing bill, and uh, we had Shami Chakrabarti on the show not long ago, just talking about basically this kind of this government's abandonment of a lot of the principles of I suppose liberalism really um, in turning towards a much more overtly authoritarian stance when it comes to protest also you know migration and yeah how this is linked to this justification for this particular government of its power the foundation of I suppose that power in this very exclusive and exclusionary idea of Englishness.
1: Mm. Well I mean the bill is enormous. There, there are so many aspects to the bill. And I guess the main fear that we have at the Right to Rome campaign is that the rights of the uh, gypsy Roma traveller community, who are being directly cancelled, really, their rights uh, by this bill, will be forgotten under the kind of noise of fighting back against some of the other perspectives of the bill. You know, the effectively the criminalisation of protest what that's really done is unite Sisters Uncut, XR, Black Lives Matter in in a way that has never happened before. And so those groups will be very vocal in making sure that there are amendments to the bill and that this kind of draconian legislation doesn't get its full whack. But even if XR, Sisters Uncut, Black Lives Matter, even, even if they're successful, it's highly likely that the kind of rotten core of this bill and the conservatives have been lobbying to uh, criminalize the traveling community uh, since at least, I mean, in recent modern terms, since at least 2010, where there was a letter written, signed by about 30 conservatives. And it seems what's going on really is that they were just, that it was a manifesto pledge, we are going to criminalize trespass. Human Rights Watch basically sort of focused on this and said, well, if you're criminalizing, uh, people being able to stop the night uh in a van uh what you're really doing is criminalizing the way of life of a proportion of your citizens so what they really did was open it up to and, and made the bill more vague which basically now means that uh if you're kayaking and you pull up to a piece of land uh to to wild camp there or if you're cycling uh or or just rambling and you know you're you're looking to become a wild camper you will also be criminalized by this bill and that's in in some ways that is the collateral of the conservatives trying not to be uh, a, a accused of you know the base bigotry which is at the heart of this bill so i don't know are we in the second reading i don't know if you know grace any more than i do i think it's with the house of lords now uh, yeah,
0: I haven't actually kept up to date on it recently, but yeah, I think you might be right.
1: And it's, um, but it looks, you know, there've been no amendments so far and it looks like it's set to go through. But I don't know. It's it's the kind of bill that will be overturned the moment a uh, government in their right mind <laughs> comes to power, basically. So, um,
0: yeah, let's hope we aren't waiting for that for too long.
1: Although <laughs> yeah, I'm not massively
0: optimistic. Yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, the pandemic has really brought home how important it is to have space to roam and enjoy nature. What should we be doing to ensure that everyone has access to the natural world? And what are you doing as part of the campaign that you've mentioned?
1: Oh, we're doing loads. It's exhausting campaign. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can't wait. Basically, on a personal level, I wish we had access to rivers, woodlands and greenbelt just so I could go back to illustration and start to (laughs) have a nice, relaxed life again. But um, the real issue, you know, the the Countryside and Rights of Way Act, uh, Labour brought in in the year 2000, it opened up 8% of the land. It was an enormous wrangling of arguments of the vested interests, you know, national farmers, unions, uh, the Country Land Association, the ramblers, the kayakers, and basically it was just this kind of... Um, piranha feeding ground of, of of people trying to get their way and like uh you know throwing swimmers rights onto the table and sacrificing them for a little bit of extra access to the peak district and it was incre- you know for all the campaigners that campaigned towards that it was a massive step forward but in terms of public health being able to access uh somewhere remote in the peak district is of absolutely no use or significance to someone living in birmingham so our our ambition is to uh, extend the Countryside and Rights of Way Act so that uh, it, it covers not just more areas of land, that's rivers, woodlands and greenbelt, but also more activities. What about mountain biking? What about horse riding? What, what really is so wrong with wild camping, stopping the night over so that you can hear the dawn chorus? But also, crucially, wild swimming, kayaking and paddle boarding. If you're on designated open access land by the words section four of the uh, countryside and rights of way act if you decide to just take your kit off and jump in a river or uh, a lake you become a trespasser swimming is actively specifically banned by the one piece of legislation that we've had to open up the countryside and i honestly see that as our as our strongest foot forward really like kayaking has just Blossomed in popularity, like uh, living on the river now. With, when you've got the duck hatch open, you see so many people just sort of like Jesus hovering by on their paddle boards. Uh, I think paddle board sales during lockdown went up three hundred percent. Wild swimmers are almost an army of people with this kind of faith in the power of cold water, and so fundamentally, for the first couple of years, our our role in the campaign is actually to amplify what people have been discovering themselves you know as more and more people have uh, been taken to the rivers they've discovered not just their lack of rights on it but the fierce aggression that they're met with as if they've just burnt someone's house down kind of thing but also we need to uh it in a nutshell we need to solve the litter problem uh we need to listen to landowners and people that work uh for landowners you know the farmers and land workers we need to listen to their concerns and some of their concerns are based on uh, a kind of orthodox paranoia but other of their concerns sheep worrying uh litter uh like abusive ramblers you know safety to their crops and all of that kind of thing it's our job to basically remind people uh, of what the philosophy of the commons was that you don't get your rights unless you owe the landscape and its community a responsibility and a care. And and that's precisely the heart of every right to roam legislation there is across Europe, in Norway, Sweden, Scotland, our closest neighbours, that with extending people's rights come, comes a much clearer and a much more uh, specific and pragmatic outdoor access code that actually limits the places that you're you know very reasonable places that you're not allowed to go e.g people's back gardens or like uh, trampling over crops but also encourages people to learn more about the ecology by understanding not just what they are and allowed to not allowed to do but but crucially why like uh, Scotland of um just recently, did a report where they, uh, you know, they discovered that people respond much better to being told why by signs than being told do not or do this kind of thing. Even the opening up of the countryside would actually encourage just a greater understanding of its workings and a greater education as to the kind of diversity that exists out there as well. I want people to start realizing there are other approaches to our, our rights to land. Um, than just this private property model that we've been lumped with for the last thousand years.
0: And reading your book is definitely a very good way to get acquainted with some of those different understandings of what it means to own and the rights associated with trespass and all these kind of amazing stories that provide such a Not just an interesting read, but a really, a different perspective on English history. And I really, really enjoyed reading it. So I would encourage all of my listeners to do so as well. Thank you so much, Nick Hayes, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win.
1: Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you.